It's January 14, 2019. This is Acacia Thompson for Brooklyn Public Library's Greenpoint Oral History Project for Our Streets, Our Stories. I'm here at the Central Library with Ward Dennis, environmental activist. Hi, Ward. Hello, how are you? I'm well, thanks. Uh, so tell me, how long have you been in the North Side, and uh, what brought you into environmental advocacy? Actually, South Side, mostly. Uh, 20... Five years coming up on, or yeah, I think we moved there in 1994. Uh-huh. Uh, South 2nd and Bedford. Okay, so definitely South Side. Yeah. And so, how did your advocate, your environmental advocacy journey start? Uh, I, it really started um, probably early 2000s. Uh, I've been involved in uh, land use planning and historic preservation and was very good friends with Debbie Masters. Uh, who was environmental advocate, uh, worked for Councilman Fisher, Ken Fisher at the time, worked for worked with NAG for a while, uh, and she's the one who got me involved at the community board level, uh, and that's how I sort of came into the broader picture and stuff. Right, and so what were some of the projects that, and you, you came into Neighbors, at the time you came in, was it, Still Neighbors Against Garbage, or was it, it Neighbors Allocated? It was, they were, they had, I guess, just changed their name. I think it was right before I came on that they had changed their name. Uh, I started with them probably in 2008, I think, mm-hmm. um, uh, after the rezoning, and that was right around the time, yes, they had changed their name from Neighbors Against Garbage to Neighbors Allied for Good Growth. Uh, as a sort of as a response to the post rezoning, having mm-hmm. accomplished the against garbage part of their mission, uh, so that's when I that's about the time that I joined them, and it was as the community was going through uh, various follow up rezonings from two thousand and five, as we were still going through uh, variances and other. Other development actions, um, and right before a couple years before, I guess, uh, but as the domino rezoning was uh, was definitely heating up, uh, and at the time, NAG was very focused on housing issues. Um, in again, in part uh, as a follow up to the rezoning, there was funding available from the city for uh, anti displacement work. Was, NAG was doing a fair amount of hou- housing advocacy, particularly on loft law issues. Uh, so. And so that's how you got involved. Yeah. yeah, and I had, at that time, I was on the community board and chair of the land use committee of the community board uh, from just after the 2005 rezoning through, I guess, about 2010. And what compelled you to get involved this way as an architect? Uh, Debbie. <laughs> Debbie was Debbie Masters was very compelling. Um, no, I mean it. You know all stuff that interested me and interested me as a, I'm not an architect but a preservationist. Um, uh, I'm very involved in land use issues at work and was seeing that you know there was so much going on in Williamsburg and Greenpoint and not. You know, there, there was some great people working at the local level, particularly on the ad hoc rezoning committee, uh, but there, there still was need for a lot more 
experience and expertise and you know basically seeing how development projects play out from the development side, wanting to be sure that what was happening in our community was benefiting the community. And had there been any sort of help in this way before, or did you feel like your expertise was really going to be helpful? I mean, I think it was helpful. There was, like I said, there were a lot of people who were very experienced and involved uh, in it. So I sort of came in uh, at the tail end of the rezoning process in 2003-2004. The community board already had its ad hoc committee established. Uh, I did a lot of work in particular with what was called the Heightened Zoning Subcommittee, which Heather Roslin headed up. Uh, Jay Fox was involved in, uh, and a few others. So there, you know, there was a lot of expertise. I think there was a lot of on the ground uh, community experience. I mean, you know, the community had already been through the 197A planning, uh, had already learned a lot, and had already outside experts coming in. So it, I don't think there was a lack of expertise, but there was certainly uh, or, you know, always need for, for more and more experience. So. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you feel about how the, the most recent waterfront rezoning, how, how that's played out in, uh, in Williamsburg and The Greenpoint? 2005 rezoning? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, uh, you know, I think that there were a huge number of missed opportunities uh, on the part of, particularly on the part of city and elected officials to create a really, a truly equitable and uh, you know, beneficial to everybody in the community kind of development process. And what we have seen is huge amounts of investment coming into the neighborhood, but mostly in terms of private investment, and then the community having over the subsequent now 13 years to really fight to get all those things that were promised as part of the rezoning, and many of the things that, uh, many of the things I think that the community was wary about in the rezoning came to be true, and many of the things that the community was pushing to make the rezoning better are now the city is recognizing and having to deal with. Uh, you know, there was, in 2004, 2005, there was a lot of push to have more office rezoning. We were, we were pushing at the community side to create local jobs and to create a zoning that really allowed a true mixed use um, mixed use uses to happen. So you could have light industry, you could have commercial offices, and you could have residential in the same place. Now we're seeing that there's a huge demand for commercial office space in North Brooklyn. We're seeing that the city is putting through a series of single, they're not allowed to call them spot zonings, but they're spot zonings, for single sites to create mixed use zoning. Uh, what you see at 25 Kent and 12 Franklin and the like, where they're now combining light industrial uses, office uses, uh, not residential, but uh, trying to work out exactly the kinds of things that we were pushing for back then. And you know, you can find examples of that in 
what the community was pushing for in terms of industrial protections, what we were pushing for in terms of affordable housing and anti-displacement, what we were pushing for in terms of open space and, and the like. So, uh, and if you look now, you know, the, there's a proposal out there for the DQX and uh, whether that's a good or a bad idea, one of the things that they're talking about is value recapture through taxes, that you're going to incentivize development, there should be some recapture of that value. None of that happened in the 2005 zoning. In fact, basically the city gave away huge amounts of money by giving tax breaks, 25, 30, 40 year tax breaks to developers. So not only is there not a value recapture for the community, there's not even a value recapture for the city. Do we have anything like 25 cent lots like that coming into Greenpoint at all that you know of? Uh, well, I mean, I guess 12 Franklin is over the line in Greenpoint, uh, okay. depending on how we're going to define our geographies. But no, that uh, 12 Franklin is definitely, Franklin is, is in Greenpoint. But, uh, you know, it, it's, I think that's going to happen all around the Bushwick Inlet uh, industrial business zone. Uh, mm -hmm. So the city created an IBZ around Bushwick Inlet in, uh, after the 2005 rezoning, essentially to try to protect industrial jobs in that area. Uh, it was, I think, massively untenable at the time and, and has proven so because you have luxury, you know, you rezoned everything around it for luxury residential uses and then said that this is gonna remain as manufacturing use What's happened is the pressure of land values has pushed owners and developers to look for highest and best uses within the as of right rezoning, which is largely hotels and nightlife. So, you know, instead of an industrial business zone, we have a hotel and nightlife zone. Uh, the city recognized this a few years ago, uh, and that's why they've been promoting things like 25 Kent and 12 Franklin, but on a one-off basis rather than on any sort of comprehensive planning basis. So talking about Bishop in the Park, you've been part of Sons of Bishop yep. in the Park for a little bit since we're talking about that area. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me about your journey with how you became part of Sons of Bishop in the Park and, and um, your struggle to yeah, obtain so our park? Uh, Friends of Bushwick Inlet Park started up shortly after the rezoning. I want to say about probably 10 years ago now or more, probably 11 or 12 years ago. Uh, NAG was uh, NAG was part of seeding that and getting that started. Um, we were also at the time pushing for a friends group for East River State Park, uh, which has started and floundered a couple times. But, uh, and Friends of Bushwick Inlet Park was uh, you know, was, was active and was always advocating, but uh, was never able to really sort of gel any sort of activism uh, pushing for the acquisition of the park, in, in part because uh, there wasn't a park to advocate for, so it was advocating for the acquisition. Um, we, I can't remember the dates properly here, um, but in, what was it, I guess it would have been 2000, 
When was it filed? Oh, 2015. 15. So in the, or the year fall, before. No, it was 2015. Was it? In the, yeah. in the winter of 2015. Yeah. So in the it was in the fall, summer fall of 2014, we had all been talking, and um, you know, people at NAG, friends of Bushwick and Rat Park, etc., had all been talking, and finally realized that you know the city is just going to keep dragging their feet there had been at the end of the Bloomberg administration talk about doing some sort of land deal to allow condos on the city storage site in return for a park and people involved with Friends of Bushwick and Red Park and, and other community groups said no that's ridiculous um, so following on that we said okay well you know now we really you know the time has come that we really have to advocate to acquire this last piece of property. Bloomberg had finally acquired uh, the Bayside Fuel Oil site, so that was in the Motiva site, so that was, or sorry, the Bayside Fuel, and then de Blasio had acquired the last piece of the Motiva site, so that just left the city storage as the last piece to be acquired. So in 2014, we had a, a big meeting in the fall, late fall, I think it was November or so, and we had a plan of action and we sort of, you know, sat around looking at each other and it's like, well, it's November, how do we get people excited about a park in the middle of winter? Uh, we are going to spend the next few months planning this out so that in the spring when the weather is great, we can launch a real campaign to acquire this last piece of property. And we had that we had that all set out in our minds and uh, went away for the winter and had been talking a bit but then and then the fire happened uh, uh, in February of 2015 to city storage to city storage and that then put this front and center for everybody um, you know the the fact that it hadn't been acquired yet the fact that it was still a document storage site and now uh, now a fire site and now would that uh, would that create more incentives for the owner to try to cut a deal to try to sell something we also realized that like I said before the market was changing such that there were a lot of potentially viable uses for the property that weren't there a few years ago you could turn it into office you could not turn it into a hotel luckily the zoning did not allow that, uh, but you could turn it into an office. So there were more viable uses out there that would prevent it from being a park and would allow it to can you know to be redeveloped. So the fire and the market really put it front and center, and the fire gave us really the uh, the lightning rod to to activate people and to get people focused on this and to get people together and we were able to get hundreds of people out to City Hall immediately after that fire. Uh, we were able to then really build on that momentum and you know it, it certainly was the catalyst that let us bring this forward. We, as I said, we had a action plan all sort of laid out and this moved our timetable up a few months but it also really galvanized people to realize that wait a second this is supposed to be a park and it's a park that the city had committed to and the city had committed to as um, as remediation for 
all the development. So here we are at that point, 10 years into the rezoning. Uh, May of 2015 was a 10 year anniversary of, of the enactment. Um, we're, we're 10 years into the rezoning. We've seen thousands and thousands of housing units developed in the rezoning area. We've seen thousands more developed around the rezoning area, uh, but we've not seen most of, at that point we had not seen very much if any of the affordable housing outside of the towers on the waterfront. We had not seen any, much if any of the open space that had been promised. A lot of the open space that had come online from 2005 to 2015 was open space that had actually been committed by the city under Giuliani and Dinkins before. So, you know, Transmitter Park was something that was planned under the Giuliani administration. Uh, and it was just had never been completed. So when the city in 2005, they were counting all of these other actions that had already been committed to but not built, uh, and we were still waiting to get the actions that had been committed to specifically for the 2015 rezoning. So, uh, you know, it, it came at a fortuitous moment and it allowed us to, it, it allowed us to galvanize the community and get a lot of people involved and that grassroots activism, that pushing uh, being able to bring out hundreds and thousands of people at various actions throughout the process allowed us to really keep the pressure on both the city and the owner to take action and for the city to really step up and acknowledge that they did owe us a park there. And they didn't promise, promise the community a park for X amount of money they promised the community a park. And so where are we, are, where are we at right now, currently, in Bushwick and Mill Park? We have a, a meeting coming up next week? Uh, next week, next Thursday. So yeah. right now, we've already had a scoping meeting for the 50 Kent site, and next we have a Motiva site. Yep. And what are you, what are you hoping for the outcome of that meeting, perhaps? Well, so the... The city has now acquired all 27 acres of the property that was committed to for Bushwick and Mill Park. Uh, about five or six acres of that has already been built, and that's the soccer field and uh, community house that exists at the south end of the park. The city is, has committed funds, uh, say about 25 million dollars between 25 to 30 million dollars for building out the 50 Kent parcel uh, which is a former manufactured gas plant site that National Grid has remediated and the Motiva parcel which is this sort of funny little very small uh, parcel that wraps around the inlet itself um, so I think and that's the scoping meeting that's coming up next week is for Motiva. Uh, we at Friends of Bushwick and Mill Park have been pushing very hard for uh, really for excellence in design and for resilient design uh, for using uh, native plants and 
most of the area that we're talking about at the north end of the park is what had been laid out in the master planning process back in 2007 as the passive areas of the park. So south end we have soccer fields, uh, there's another block that uh, just north, you know, where the existing city storage building is that uh, is slated to become other athletic fields, but everything north of that is really passive open space. And when you look at the open space allocation in, in the community, I mean, uh, you know, there's a lack of open space in general. Uh, because the active parts of Bushwick Inlet Park have come online, there's really, there's a particular lack of passive open space. And you see that playing out in some of the discussions over what's happening at the north end of Greenpoint, where, you know, should it be a play field or should it be passive open space and, and so on and so on. Uh, and part of that is because, you know, if, if you, if the city had actually done everything that they were supposed to do and we had all the parks that we're supposed to have now, uh, we would actually have a pretty good balance of open, of passive open space and active open space. But because the city hasn't done what they're doing, we're, we're sitting on probably 14, 15 acres of passive open space that has yet to be developed at Bushwick Inlet Park. Uh, we're, you know, and, and that's playing out in the discussions about what's happening elsewhere because people don't have the passive open space. But uh, Motiva site will be part of that passive open space. Uh, I think it's really the opportunity to create the most naturalistic and uh, really unprogrammed area within that park because it does sit right around the inlet. Uh, it is already a natural riparian waterfront. Uh, it's on the inlet itself, so it's a protected water area. Uh, it's not directly out on the East River uh, where you have currents and traffic and all that sort of stuff to deal with. Uh, so it really is the opportunity to create a, a very bucolic and uh, quiet uh, place. And, and, and it's a place that uh, that is where Greenpoint starts and uh, where Bushwick ends, but it, it's the place to create that connection around to the entire Greenpoint waterfront. Uh, you know, at some point, all of the waterfront development in Greenpoint will be completed. Uh, it's all been completed down in Williamsburg, but uh, Greenpoint is only starting to come online now. Uh, but at some point, that whole waterfront will be completed and there will be uh, a continuous waterfront experience from hopefully all the way from Manhattan Avenue all the way down to Division Avenue. Uh, but the, that connection at Bushwick Inlet Park and that connection from Motiva now to uh, the Greenpoint Waterfront, uh, sorry, the Greenpoint Monitor Museum site uh, is really important. And, and those two pieces sort of form that connection from the larger park to the south to all the all the waterfront esplanades and other parks to the north. Well, as this is a city, is going to be a city design park, mm -hmm. are there other city design parks in the city that you would like us to emulate a little bit? I'm just thinking about as far as like private parks and city parks. 
Is, yeah. there, is there anything that you can think of that they've done that would, would work well here? Or do you feel like it's mostly private design that's doing this sort of work? Uh, no, I mean, I think that uh, you have seen, uh, uh, looking at Hunter, Hunter Point South, uh, which has just opened up, uh, uh, there are other, you can also look at um, uh, what's been happening out at Fresh Kills, uh, which is, you know, a massive park, but uh, a lot of it is just unprogrammed and, and natural open space. Uh, so the city certainly can do this and, and can do it well. Uh, I think the community needs to continue pushing the city to live up to the highest design standards and, uh, and the community needs to needs to push the city and, and also show the city that uh, they can they can design to higher maintenance standards too. I think a lot of what happens is uh, you know the, the city budget is ridiculous when it comes to parks and open space. The uh, I can't remember the exact percentage, but uh, it's usually one percent. It's one. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, I was going to say two, but uh, or one and a half. Um, uh, Open Space Alliance now, North Brooklyn Parks Alliance, has been pushing this concept uh, for a while now. But in most cities, you're looking at uh, in the range of three and a half to five percent of the city budget is going towards parks and open space. In New York, it's one to one and a half percent, which is ridiculous underfunding of open space, and that's you know that's really the maintenance budget. Uh, so you can put money, you can put capital funds towards building a park, but the capital funds are always going to be limited if the parks department, the agency running the parks, knows that they're only going to have a limited amount of maintenance budget. And the amount of, you know, the, the amount of people working in parks in North Brooklyn is woefully underfunded. Uh, so from an activist point of view, from a community point of view, we really we need to be we need to be pushing the city to be funding parks more and to be designing parks to higher standards. But for better or worse, and, and it is some of both, we also need to be uh, coming forward with parks conservancies and friends groups to fill in some of that gap. Uh, otherwise, we are going to be left with the sort of lowest common denominator parks. And Bushwick and Red Park in particular, but really all of the waterfront parks, uh, the, the public waterfront parks on, on the waterfront are opportunities to create really world-class parks and, and parks that people, not just in the community, but throughout the city are going to come to because they are in the waterfront. and that waterfront space is very limited. We're not going to get much more of that. There are a few places where we hope to get a little bit more, but we're not going to get a lot more. Uh, and we need to be pushing the city to to be de- designing really world-class parks. And that was part of, that was really the idea behind the envisioning series that Friends of Bushwick and Red Park did uh, in the first half of 2018. Uh, was really trying to uh, learn for ourselves, but also 
educate the community as to what is a real world-class waterfront park and what are the expectations that we should be having uh, so that when we come into these design kind of meetings and when we get presented with uh, the outcomes of those design meetings, we're able to say, well, wait a second, no, that's not, that's not what we had in mind and no, we know that we can do more, we can do better. So that's, I mean, that's really, I think, where the advocacy of Friends of Bush Oklahoma Park has now shifted. And, you know, for the longest time, we were advocating to just acquire a park to, for the city to live up to its commitment to buy the property. Now we're shifting to stewardship on the, ones, on the one hand, what are we doing in the park itself, but also advocating for the city to now live up to its responsibility in designing and funding and maintaining uh, the park itself. Because our open space has required so much advocacy, and because the neighborhood has inspired so much environmental activism in its citizens, why do you think there's such a robust community? I feel like we have a very strong environmental activist community in Greenpoint and Williamsburg. Why is that? Why? Uh, well, there were a lot of issues, uh, and there still are a lot of issues. Um, uh, you know, uh, Luis Gardner Costa, uh, one of the founders of El Puente, died last week, and uh, was looking at an old um, sort of 1992 documentary on public television about the neighborhood, and, and it was really interesting because this was. NAG was founded in 1994, GWAP was founded about 1994. This was sort of at that moment right before some of these other groups had been founded, but El Puente, uh, Polish community in Greenpoint, Hasidic community in South Williamsburg, were all starting to coalesce around these various environmental issues. And at that time, and it was, it was incredible to look at it, at that time, there was an active incinerator next to a uh, sewage treatment plant in Greenpoint. And the sewage treatment plant was nothing like the world-class sewage treatment plant we have now. It was just basically uh, acres of open vats of sewage being treated, uh, with then all the sludge being piped through the neighborhood to the sludge tank over on uh, uh, over on the East River, where, where where Barge Park is now, that's that's the barge. It was these uh, was the sludge barges. Uh, so and and at the same time, the city was planning an incinerator at the south end of the community in the Brooklyn Navy Yard. And at the same time, the city, the Giuliani administration, which had just come in, was looking at the Williamsburg waterfront, the north side waterfront, as essentially the solution to fresh kills. Giuliani had committed to closing the fresh kills landfill on Staten Island, uh, and one of the ways that the city was going to handle all that garbage that used to go to Staten Island was to have it come through this neighborhood so it could be put on barges and taken away, and that was the garbage that uh, Neighbors Against Garbage was against. Uh, and what Neighbors Against Garbage was advocating for was public access to the waterfront, because there was no public access to the waterfront. Any, anywhere along 
the Williamsburg Greenpoint waterfront. Everybody, everybody could go down to the waterfront because it was vacant land, but it was not publicly accessible. And we were advocating, uh, starting in 94, for public access to the waterfront, for redevelopment of the waterfront for residential and, and other uses. Uh, but this documentary was sort of right before that moment. And talking with uh, Luis was in the documentary, Rabbi Joseph Weber, uh, who's in the, uh, sorry, from UJO, uh, who was also on the community board with me years ago, uh, and then other activists in Greenpoint, uh, talking with all these people who, you know, it really was a grassroots effort on behalf of really working class people who lived in communities and, and you know, the South Williamsburg, South Side, North Side, Greenpoint, uh, definitely different communities, but they lived in communities that were really and truly the dumping ground for the city. And that's where all of this started, and it really started at that grassroots level. Um, there were at the same time in the in the 80s and 90s, you had more and more artists uh, moving in from Manhattan and occupying uh, sort of the what were then the fringe areas. Uh, so then they're getting layered on as part of this activism, and that's you know that's where people like Debbie Masters came from. Mm -hmm. As a preservationist, is anything being preserved that you're excited about? Or <laughs> <laughs> um, well, not enough, but. Uh, you know, I think that's another area that the city has really uh, has really dropped the ball. Um, you know, the I I live in Williamsburg. I live on, on the south side. Uh, south side Williamsburg is one of the oldest uh, neighborhoods in the city. It's as old as Greenwich Village. It's as old as Brooklyn Heights. Uh, it has buildings that date from. 1830 to the turn of the century, uh, but it does not have any landmarks. Uh, Greenpoint has a historic district, but there are certainly areas beyond that. Uh, as part of 2005, we pushed hard and did get uh, the Everhard Favor district designated, which was great, but there's a lot of other industrial architecture, there's a lot of other residential architecture, uh, there's, you know, going back to the south side, there's an incredible story about the development of Williamsburg starting in 1827 when it became a village through 1850 when it became part of the city of Brooklyn and you have another huge wave of development from 1850 to 1880 and then as the Williamsburg Bridge gets constructed you have this next huge wave of development from about 1900 to 1920 with a lot of six-story uh, tenement apartment buildings. So you have this really rich layering of development that, that covers almost a century of urban development in New York that is just being completely ignored and being slowly whittled away and demolished and torn down and altered. Uh, 
the city designated uh, one of the buildings at the Domino site. Uh, the city tried to designate 184 Kent. Uh, city council in their infinite wisdom decided that it was better not being a landmark. Uh, and then it's now on the National Register, but it's not a city landmark. So, uh, yeah, so there's, there's a lot more that can be done there. And before we go, can, are there any, what are the, what do you believe are the most pressing environmental issues in your area in Williamsburg or Green Point? Probably twofold. One, certainly the legacy of 100, 150 years of industrial development, of city neglect and city dumping of unpleasant uses uh, on the area. Um, you know, Newtown Creek is a Superfund site. Uh, there are all these other brownfield and, and smaller Superfund sites. Um, and at North Brooklyn Neighbors NAG, we looked at this a few years ago and developed a toxicity map. It was basically, you know, we, we realized four or five years ago that we had this huge amount of institutional knowledge, that we had been working on all these different rezonings, we had all this information from all these environmental impact statements. We didn't know half of it, we knew that, but we knew a lot, and people moving into the neighborhood didn't know any of it. So that was the genesis of the toxicity map that we did uh, in conjunction with uh, uh, Savvy at Pratt uh, and funded by New York State DEC. Uh, and it was a really interesting project. It combined a lot of on-the-ground research for, you know, what taking all these different sources of information on Superfund sites, on spills, on this, that, and the other, and also combining that with historical research on where different legacy environmental uses have been. And we're now actually in the process of expanding that map, uh, expanding it geographically and expanding it temporally. Uh, so I think that's, that's a big issue because that's something that underlies a lot of what is in the neighborhood. We realize from that project that nobody really understood lead contamination issues. We, you know, there's data out there that Greenpoint, quote unquote, has the highest level of uh, uh, lead in the city, uh, which actually turns out not really be about Greenpoint, but really about all of Community Board One, because the city has some definition somewhere in the database that tracks lead that assigns Greenpoint to everything in CB1. So it, it's an issue that actually extends from South Williamsburg through Greenpoint. Uh, so we're now working on lead and soil issues at, at NAG. So that environmental legacy that is, you know, despite all the glass towers and the new buildings is not going away. And then on time, and then on top of that, next to that, you have climate change and you have uh, global warming, you have uh, water inundation, which we are seeing more and more, and which just exacerbates 
that 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 industrial environmental legacy question. Uh, if you look at, we did a fascinating thing with Friends of Bush Victor Mill Park uh, a few months ago, um, looking at where the old waterways had been and looking at where, you know, Bushwick, Bushwick Inlet was the inlet for a creek uh, that was really a whole system of marshland that extended all the way into McCarran Park and then the creek itself was navigable by boat all the way along Union Avenue as far out as Grand Street. So if you look at the old maps, uh, Greenpoint itself was really inaccessible by land uh, until the middle of the 19th century uh, between Newtown Creek on the one side and English Kills and Bushwick Inlet on the other. So you have all of this historical geography happening underneath us, which is going to be very much influenced by climate change. When you look at the flood maps from Sandy, and not just in our neighborhood, but across the city, where you have huge amounts of landfill is essentially where the water went. Uh, Red Hook was a series of islands, and the parts of Red Hook that didn't flood were above ground in 1600, the parts that did flood were below ground. South Street Seaport, same thing. Uh, Rockaways, uh, uh, in Greenpoint, in, in Long Island City, and so on. So, you know, this is, this is something that we have to deal with, something that we've been dealing with for centuries. Uh, but it's something that as we become more intensified in our development, as we have more and more infrastructure that sits in the ground, I, you know, I think that 100 years ago, if your building in South Street flooded, whatever was in the basement was written off, and the building stood, and the building still stood. The, the building stood after Sandy, uh, but there was definitely more stuff underground. There were garages underground. There were oil tanks underground. Uh, there were boilers and other infrastructure underground. So it's it's an issue in terms of resiliency. It's an issue in terms of the industrial legacy. And the two, I think, are going to be very closely tied together. Thanks for speaking with me today. I'm not, I'm not raising up. <laughs>